Hi, everybody. I am here with Dr. Elliot Groves. She is an assistant professor at the Initiative for Research and Education to Advance Community Health at the Washington State University. And she has a lot of broad research interests that include um, advancing cultural learning and human development, as well as the study of prevention and recovery from trauma. And today we're going to learn more about her work with the Koichan tribes. And um, welcome. Hi, thank you so much, Adam, for having me. Um, as Adam mentioned, my name is Emma Elliott Groves, and I'm from the Cowichan tribes on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, and I'm happy to be here to share a little bit about my research. Fantastic. Let's start by just going over a little bit about the Cowichan tribes and um, what, tell us about that. Yes, the Cowichan Tribes is located on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. It's the largest tribal community in British Columbia with over 4,800 uh, tribal members. And um, today the Cowichan Tribes is thriving in that there's a lot of um, ceremony and cultural protocols that continue to exist. And in other ways, the Cowichan Tribes in the past five years or so has experienced an increase in suicidal behavior. And so we're going to dive into that a little bit today and um, work on exploring the meanings and explanations of suicidal behavior from the perspective of the Cowichan tribe members. And um, I'd want to make sure that we really touch on the historical, political, social context and the history driving this unique uh, phenomenon among indigenous populations. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Indigenous populations in Canada, here in the United States, in Australia and New Zealand, have a particular historical context that we need to attend to in order to understand what's happening in our communities. Um, the history of colonization, specifically, has had a largely detrimental impact on the everyday lives of Indigenous people. And um, so I think when we think about what's going on in our communities, we have to look at and understand our predicaments from the perspective of the community members, but also we have to take into consideration the collective or interdependent orientation of tribal communities. Um, and I understand some of your research is framed around particular theories in suicide and suicide prevention. And I just wanted to take a moment to have you teach us a little bit about these theories um, that help drive your work. And you already touched on this a little bit, um, this idea of the individualistic versus a collectivistic orientation. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. So in some ways, my work has taken up understanding suicide on an individual level using the interpersonal theory of suicide. And briefly, the interpersonal theory of suicide posits that suicidal ideation or the desire to die by suicide occurs in the context of two um, simultaneous factors. That is, this idea of thwarted belongingness, this feeling that I'm so alone, and also this idea of perceived burdensomeness, this idea that I'm such a burden on myself or others. However, um, most people that experience these two things don't actually die by suicide. So Thomas Joyner and colleagues and a large body of literature says that um, the difference is this acquired capacity to enact lethal self-harm. Now in my work we've actually found this theory to hold true. However, in addition, we have also found that with um, indigenous communities and in particular the Cowichan tribes, we have to consider the collective or interdependent orientation. So when I went to the community and said, what's happening here? 
Um, some folks gave me examples that might be explained on an individual level, but more predominantly and across every single interview that I did, folks said we actually have to understand the history of colonization and how that continues to impact our collective in order to understand what's happening today. Fascinating. So important. Um, and so you touched on this idea of colonialization. What, what, does, what does that mean and how did that impact uh, indigenous populations? So I also theorized my work, in addition to the interpersonal theory of suicide, I also theorized my work through settler colonial theory. And at its core, settler colonialism is about land. It's about indigenous dispossession in order to make possible settler futures. And um, all, of, all of the mechanisms that operate in settler colonialism operate to remove indigenous people from their land. So when we think about everyday examples, such as the lack of curriculum, uh, indigenous history that's being taught in schools, that's an example of indigenous erasure. When we think about the um, lack of indigenous representation, even in academia, that's another form of indigenous erasure. When we think about, um, even on a broad level, pipelines or um, trains or buildings or metropolis, all of these things that are being built make it possible for settlers to imagine their own futures, but also make it difficult or challenging for indigenous populations to imagine their own futures in the same way that they had prior to colonization. So what we need to do is understand all of those different things that have been shifted or changed and um, strengthen those areas so that indigenous communities can plan and prepare for their own futures, can make decisions for themselves in relation to, in relation to their education systems, their food systems, their religious systems, their governance systems, and so on. So important, as you mentioned, to strengthen these factors around community and empowering the uh, populations that you work with and that you are a part of. That's right, because as indigenous peoples, we understand ourselves to be a part of a vast network of life, and we understand ourselves to be in relations with each other, in relations with our plant relations, in relations with our animal relations, in relations with our ancestral relations, and all of these relationships are equally and very much important to the everyday lives of our people, and therefore, when we think about how to address the predicaments in our communities, we need to think about um, understanding ourselves in the context of this multiplicity of relationships. Um, so I want to get into a little bit more about how you went about conducting this research um, with the Cowichan tribes. Can you talk a little bit about your process here to sort of interview members of the community? Absolutely. So the first thing is in the spring of 2012, I came to understand that the Cowichan tribes was experiencing a high rate of suicidal behavior. In fact, my sister-in-law called me one night, and she doesn't usually call me. She actually usually Facebook messages me. So I wondered what was going on. And this particular night, she was calling me to ask me if I had any understanding about how our community has handled or... Um, has handled or understood suicide. She wanted to know the stories of our people, the beliefs around suicide, and I didn't have an answer for her. And so we knew right then and there that our first step was to uh, was to ask the elders in our community, how can we understand this in order to move forward? And from there, that's when this research project um, started. And uh, so once we talked to the elders to find out 
that there was an issue and that we needed to go about doing this, I then began interviewing folks in the community to get their perspective. And I did a semi-structured interview protocol, but the broad question there is, what are the meanings and explanations of suicidal behavior from your perspective? Why are our young people losing their way? And um, what we found, largely, is there were some folks that talked about individual reasons for suicide, such as mental health con concerns, substance use issues, divorce, for example. But largely, and across all of the interviews that I did, including the youth interviews, folks identified reasons related to the unequal distribution of power between Canada's federal government and Cowichan First Nations community members. So we did a qualitative interview just to get the understanding of what was happening in the community, and from there we um, naturally had to come up with what next. And the second part of the data collection involved taking young people out on a nature walk in order to understand and get data about who they identify as their systems of relationships and to ask them to tell us stories about their relationships. And the broad research question there was to see if we can do an alternative approach to the initial psychiatric interview in order to make a diagnosis with um, the young people about their mental health status. And at large, we found that, yes, we were able to get all of the pieces of information that we needed to conduct a typical biopsychosocial assessment as a social worker. And in addition, we found that we were able to gather a significant amount of rich data that could tell me information about the young people and their everyday experiences, including their mental health, um, and how to move forward with them um, from doing this alternative uh, approach to the biopsychosocial assessment. That's such important work. And again, we really appreciate you sharing that with us and shedding some light on especially this collectivistic idea, moving away from just these individual level factors that we often think about in terms of mental illness and substance use, but really understanding this cultural and historical perspective that might drive suicide risk among the Cowichan tribes. Absolutely. And like I said, we're, we're not discounting um, the individual level understandings because all of us are individuals. We are also um, social. Um, so if we take into consideration both the individual level as well as all of the collective or interdependent factors, I think we can have a really strong understanding of what's happening in the community. And um, you, in your uh, paper, you often refer to this as a culturally responsive model of understanding suicide. Can you go into that a little bit more for us? Yes. So the first thing that we needed to do was uh, ask the elders, what are the things that we need to take into consideration when we're wanting to do this research? And for us in Cowichan, elders told me things like, we have to remember who we are. And what that means is we have to remember who we are in relations to multiple other people and our responsibility um, that we have to the people, the plants, the animals, and our ancestral relations. So remembering who we are also um, points to the idea that uh, we also we have to remember that we're people as individuals, we're people as, um, are, we are socially driven. We don't exist in isolation, we exist in social relationships. Um, we have to remember that as Cowichan people, we're people who belong to a particular place and who have particular responsibilities. And um, so they told us that 
things like we have to take into consideration the importance of place. We have to take into consideration the intergenerational transmission of knowledge, the interdependent orientation of the community. Um, they said that we have our own ways, so that means that we have to take into consideration our own cultural practices and ways of learning. And for us, for example, the ways of learning include things like learning by doing, hands-on learning, or um, scaffolded learning by learning from uh, more knowledgeable others, like elders, for example. So when we designed, for, for example, the nature walk that we did, we took all of these things into consideration in, in the design of the nature walk itself. So we had multi-generational family households participating in the nature walk. We had uh, the nature walk take place alongside the Cowichan River. We had um, different kinds of activities such as oral storytelling and ceremony and prayer uh, to launch the activity in a good way. So when we think about working with indigenous communities, it's important to go directly to the community to find out the kinds of things that are important to them and to work collaboratively with the community to identify those things in order to have those values inform every step of your work from uh, conception all the way to dissemination. Emma, that is so grateful. Uh, I'm so thankful to have you on here and share that knowledge with us. And um, I know that we're only catching sort of a glimpse, a window into your world of research and all the exciting things you're doing. Um, we can't cover it all today, but we'd, we'd love to have you back um, at some point to touch back in on progress in this area. Um, however, before I let you go today, can we can you leave us with any closing remarks or thoughts, you know, and again, maybe um, uh, something culturally uh, relevant that, you know, some parting wisdom that you could share with us? Sure. Um, so if we look at this research and folks in the community said that the reasons for suicide in the community have something to do with the history of education, the history of governance, the history of uh, related to food systems. If we think about all of these different things in the community, we can think about these as the collective capacities of the community that make it possible for communities to thrive. And once we uh, disrupt or break the relationships of all of these different capacities in the community, that makes it difficult for communities to thrive. And by thrive, I mean having the ability to plan and prepare for their own futures, to make decisions for themselves, their children, and their future generations. And um, I think my wisdom would be basically... Um, folks usually ask, so if I say it has something to do with the unequal distribution of power, uh, where do we go from here? What, what do we do? How can we design interventions that address this? And my response to those folks are to look at the different collective capacities within the community. For example, if it's education, we might design uh, systems to strengthen the uh, decision-making power and sovereignty that tribes have in relation to educating their children. If it's food systems, we might think about interventions that can help make sure that every single person in the community has enough food to eat and how we might go about doing that. And so we think about all of these different locations of intervention and the sky is the limit quite frankly, but we also need to take into consideration the values that uh, the community has. And in my community, we talked about things such as place-based orientation or intergenerational transmission of knowledge. Um, so there are solutions out there, 
Um, for me, it's really important, um, not just for me, actually, for Indigenous communities writ large and people who work with Indigenous communities to take a um, more socio-eco uh, perspective or to understand communities in their uh, historical, social, cultural, and political contexts, because these things are not just con- uh, these things are not just happening in history. These things continue to happen in Indigenous communities today. Very well said. We appreciate you so much for being on the show today. Um, just as a sort of closing remark, uh, how can folks talk to you or get in touch with you if they have additional comments or questions or just want to hear more about your work or? maybe uh, some, some things are going on in their community that they can relate to with you. How do they reach you? Absolutely. Folks are um, welcome to reach out to me at emma.elliot at wsu.edu. That's fantastic. And we'll include a link to your email when we post this podcast. So we will absolutely make sure that uh, folks can have an easy way to reach you. And thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show today.